How many people are ready for the word today? Okay. So I want to talk to you today uh, about the subject of the presence of God. The presence of God. That will be our topic at hand. And this is a big topic. Um, God's presence is something that I mention, refer to, uh, speak of on so many different occasions and in so many other teachings that, that many times I am aware I will make a statement about the presence of God and then we will be moving into some other kind of teaching or discussion. And I think that it's important that regularly and often we kind of take a little bit of a deep dive into this topic so that there's some foundation for everybody so that when we are talking about or referring to the presence of God, there, there's some substance there to which we can build our understanding for other things that we're discussing or teaching on. Does that make sense? Um, it's a huge topic. It, the presence of God is something that has just absolutely wrecked my life. Uh, being in God's presence, knowing His presence, having the opportunity to live in His presence, I mean, it's just changed me forever. There are two real prominent things I feel like that come out of my teaching, that come out of the, the ministry that God does in me, and I think it's just part of what He's done in my life, and so it's what comes out. And those two things are about purpose and destiny, that God's created us for a purpose. Each and every one of us are unique. There's a calling on our lives. But this thing about God's presence in our lives, I would say, is also a very prominent thing. It's wrecked me. So much so uh, that I would never be satisfied or content in a house of worship or in a gathering of corporate worship uh, where the presence of God was not there, or even, I think, for I would say, or even just very faint. <laughs> uh, the presence of God being in our midst and being in our houses of worship, it, it is paramount to what we are trying to do <laughs> to advance the kingdom of God. I mean, really, I would say that you cannot separate God's people and the work that we are here to do to, to advance the kingdom, right? You cannot separate that from God's presence in our lives. If you take the presence of God out of the church, here's what happens. It becomes just another institution. And the, and the church is not an institution. It's actually an organism. It, there's life in it. And that life that's in it is because God's presence is there. Are you with me? Uh, and, and so I'm going to attempt to just kind of build some foundation today around this topic and, and go a little deeper in, in this morning, but I'm also very well aware that this is really just a, a meager attempt to try to teach and talk about something that is so vast and even really still mysterious, miraculous, and supernatural uh, that I just pray God gives me the grace and the words to be able to convey some things that help us establish some solid theology and doctrine around this today. 
I mean, if I was to try to think of a comparison, and it, it's not even a good comparison, but anything that would equate to like the complexity and the mystery of like the presence of God, I would say maybe a woman's brain comes close. <laughs> I am still trying to figure that one out. How you ladies can put all of that stuff together and it can all touch and it can all make sense. My wife is going through things with me and I'm just like, well, I'm one subject change away from being totally lost in where we're going right now. But for her, everything connects, right? So the presence of God, and let me start out by just saying, when we look at presence, and you see the word presence in the Bible, it is normally referring to one of three applications. There are three types of applications that presence can have. I'm just going to go through those with you briefly and then we'll, we'll really get into the meat of our message. The first one would be the omnipresence of God. Omnipresence. Omni just means everywhere or all of something. When I was a kid, there used to be a sporting goods franchise named Omni Sports. I don't know if anybody ever remembers that. But I think what they were trying to say is we have everything. Everything that you would need. They're out of business, so I guess that wasn't true. But... <laughs> omnipresence of God, it, it means that God is everywhere all the time. There's nowhere ever that God is not. And he is actually outside of all things that are created, and in him all things were created. Try to figure that one out, okay? But he's, he's omnipresent, which just means he is everywhere all of the time. Scriptures say that he not only fills all of heaven and all of earth, but all of heaven and all of earth cannot even contain him. That's powerful. That's our God. He's omnipresent. David said in the Psalms, Psalm 139.7, I love this. He said, Lord, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Anybody ever been in a season of your life or in a situation, if you're honest and you admit it, where you were kind of running from God, right? Running from Him, trying to run away from the things of God and whatever that might be. David was, was there as well. He could relate to that if you've ever felt that way before. But he came to this conclusion time and again, as others have, is there, God, there's nowhere I can go that you're not. There's nowhere I can flee from your presence. And so this part of God's character is omnipresence. It's unconditional. I mean, it just doesn't matter if, if people know it or believe it or not. It's just always still the case. He is everywhere all the time. This is great because for the person who is trying to run from God or who's far from God or thinks they've done so much that God's over here and they're over here and it's just going to take a whole lot for them to get back or close to His presence. What, what Scripture is telling us is in the moment that they decide to turn, He is right there and ready to receive them if they will humble themselves. Wow. And so this one is unconditional. Nothing is hidden from Him. Anybody ever do something or think something and maybe have this kind of like illusion or, or thought that maybe we're hiding something from God? Kind of just keep that one tucked away. 
And God peers into the recesses of our heart. He's everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. The second aspect of God's presence is what I would refer to as the indwelling presence of God. The indwelling presence. And this is, uh, the, the first one I said was unconditional. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. The indwelling presence of God in human hearts, in human lives, is very much conditional. And it's conditional on uh, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's conditional on an individual confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, repenting of sin and asking Jesus into their heart. And then they would be what the Bible calls born again or born of the Spirit. That's interesting. Two births. The first birth, we all know, we come through the way of the womb. That's physical. But the second birth is, is conditional upon faith in Jesus Christ. He says you're born of the Spirit, not of the flesh. That's the second birth. So when we're born again, God's Spirit comes to live on the inside of us very literally, not metaphorically. So there's His life beating on the inside of us, you know, sustaining us. And that's the indwelling presence of God that's there. Me, an imperfect person, but walking with the presence of God in me in my life. That's how Jesus could say, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, because my spirit will abide in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, listen to this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. And in Corinthians, we know it says that our bodies are the temple of God and the spirit lives within them or dwells within them. So this is the indwelling presence. And then the third one is what we would refer to as the manifest presence of God. That's a word that, that we use. Now, there are, there are words in scripture that have that definition or meaning, manifest. It just means to present something and make it apparent it means that it's, it's clear, it's in front of us, that it's, it's even almost tangible. So let me ask you this question. How many people are familiar with or have ever come into encounter with the tangible presence of God? It's powerful. We'd say that that's the manifest presence, right? The psalmist says that God will inhabit the praises of his people. So just think about this for a second as we come together Many of us with the indwelling presence of God in us, praising and worshiping God corporately, then God's presence begins to come and fill the atmosphere in our praises, and there is a tangible expression of God's presence that surrounds us. There's presence indwelling, but there's presence that immerses us as well. There are many occasions and stories of ancient rabbis in the early centuries who would read the scriptures, who would break open the books of the law, and they would study or read them together. And it's amazing because they would account that if two or more of them sat and conversed about the law, then they would experience the presence of God. It's what they called the Shekinah glory, the weight of his splendor that would actually come and rest upon them. Wow. That's another way to say it, manifest presence. It rests upon us. God dwells in our midst. Remember what I said, you don't separate the church from his presence. You don't separate God's people from his presence. A, a part of God's covenant with his people throughout all the ages is this is how this works. 
um, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. My presence will be with you and people will know you by my presence that you carry with you wherever you go. It's something that marks us. It's a differentiating factor. It's favor. It's God's weight. It's splendor and glory that's resting upon our lives. Jesus said it this way, where two or more are gathered together in my name, then I am there in the midst of them. Isn't that powerful? Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, it's wonderful to have a room packed of so many people here today and and to have God drawing so many people, but I'm just telling you, where two or more gather and unify in praise, prayer, and worship, there is a promise from God that says, this is how I respond to that. I'll put my presence in the atmosphere. I will will bless you with my presence, and it will surround you, and you will know that I'm there. And Luke says in the book of Acts, he says that there are times of refreshing that will continually come to believers as they dwell in the presence of God. So there are all these byproducts of presence. I don't even have time to get into all that today, but just to say one of those is that our soul is continually refreshed by being in God's presence. Just a simple question. How many people from time to time could use some refreshing? This guy right here, for sure. Use some refreshing, right? The Bible says it'll come. But there's got to be a hunger there for that. Like, we, we have to lean into that. We have to seek and pursue that. It's just like, I need presence. I need His presence in my life like I need air. It, may, it reminds me of this old parable where there's a, a teacher and a student. And the student comes to the teacher and he says, Teacher, how do I pursue the presence of God in my life? And the teacher says, well, here, we're going to have an object lesson. And so they go out to this pond, this lake, and they go out to the lake, and he says, let's go on in, and they wade in, they get all the way up to their neck in the water, and then the teacher looks to the student, and he takes his hand, and he puts it on his head, and he pushes him underwater. And then he holds him underwater for a while. And the student is scrambling and wrestling and fighting, and teacher continues to hold him and finally he lets him go and the student pops up <gasps> he's gasping for air so they go to the shore and the teacher's catching his, the student's catching his breath and he's like i don't understand like why did you do that he's like let me ask you a question while you were underwater and i was holding you down there what was the one thing that you were thinking about well, you're a jerk first of all but no, no he said um i was just thinking how i needed air He says, when you need God's presence like you needed air, then you're going to find him. Wow. It's a pursuit of our heart. So let's go to the scripture now that we've kind of built a bit of a foundation on omnipresence and dwelling presence, manifest presence. And guys, I mean, so much so my heart here is is at LCX and everything that we do, however many campuses God you know, leads us to have how many buildings, however many sanctuaries and meeting places and youth rooms and facilities. Guys, the genuine desire of my heart, of our heart, always and needs to be God's presence must be here or none of this even matters. None of this even matters. His presence needs to fill this house, fill the lives of his people, and it needs to be a part of our homes and our families everywhere that we go. Amen. So let's go to the uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I've got a great story 
to share with you today that we'll do a little bit of teaching on. And again, the, the, the arc of this message, the trajectory of this message is, is God's presence. But very specifically now where I want to take this today, something I think is very, very important for us, uh, not only in our understanding, but in our, our behavior, our action of how we respond to God's presence. The title of the message is A Reverence for His Presence. A reverence for his presence. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, let's read starting in verse 1. It says, David gathered all of the choice men of Israel, around 30,000. So this is shortly after David has become officially now king. We know he was anointed early, but he was instilled first in Hebron and then again later through all of Israel. And so now David is king on the throne over all of Israel And so this is in the beginning of that, and that's significant, you'll see in a moment. Verse 2, David arose, and he went with all the people who were with him to a place called Baal Judah, and they wanted to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is the Ark of the Covenant, whose name is called by name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And so they set the Ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So they're carrying this thing on a brand new cart. It's all fancy and it's got chrome rims and and all that good stuff, right? So they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And so David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, on sistrums. I was just playing a sistrum the other day. And on cymbals. I don't even know what a sistrum is. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah, a man named Uzzah, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. So the oxen are pulling the cart. Uzzah reaches out to stop it as it's falling. Listen to this, verse 7. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. Wow, this is significant. So David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of that place Perez Uzzah, which just means God broke out against Uzzah to this day. And so David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord God come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, which was Jerusalem. He's trying to get it to Jerusalem, the capital city. And so so then David decided not to move it there. David took it aside, says, okay, after this, let's let's get it to a village somewhere nearby. So they get it to the house of a man named Obed Edom, the Gittite. Everybody say, Obed-Edom. Now say it three times fast. Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom. So the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. Now listen to what happened. The Lord blessed the household, all of his household of Obed-Edom. And so it was told to King David saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God is there. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Wow. So he finally gets it there to 
Jerusalem. But there was a little bit of a detour along the way. What happened and why? What are the lessons that we can learn about reverence for God's presence from the house of Obed-Edom? So the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, just got to understand, represents God's presence, right? God's presence was, was there in this Ark, with the Ark. It goes all the way back to God's instructions to Moses in the wilderness to prepare for headed into the promised land. He said that they would make a tabernacle, and then they would build an ark, and, and the ark would, would dwell in the tabernacle. And this ark was like a big box. They had the tablets of stone from the uh, Mount Sinai from Moses that were in there. They, they kept a pot of manna from the wilderness when God rained down manna in heaven. They kept a pot of manna in there. And then Aaron's staff that, of course, blossomed uh, was also in there, and God's presence, most importantly, is what was marked by this, okay? They're trying to move this ark to Jerusalem, and, and what had happened, just quickly looking back, a little bit of the history progression is once the people of God came out of the wilderness, and they established residency in the promised land, then the tabernacle, which it had been, it had been mobile through the promised land, they would pick up, and they would move it, and they would reset it up, when they got into the promised land and they settled, then they set it up in a place called Shiloh, a city called Shiloh, and they set the ark of God in the tabernacle there. But then eventually, through a series of events, the ark got captured by the Philistines, and then they got cursed by the ark being there. Tumors broke out and they're all over their city, so they sent the ark of God away. And then eventually it ends up in this town called Baal Judah, there's another verse in Chronicles, the same city is called Kiriath Urim, but it ends up in this town and it stays there for a while and then David becomes king and he realizes, listen, it's very important, he understands that I'm going to reign on the throne by God's design and his plan and the capital city is going to be Jerusalem and it is of critical importance that for what God is wanting to do, that we get the ark of God into the central capital of the city that's the center of the military political campaign. This is necessary for the spiritual well-being of the land that God's presence would be central to our society. Do you understand that? So David knows that. It's very important. He's trying to get it there. And uh, something happens along the way while they're taking it back up to Jerusalem. They're transporting it from Baal Judah, and as they're taking it there, this man named Uzzah reaches out. You heard me when we read it. He tries to stop the Ark of God from falling off this cart, and when he touches it, the moment he touches it, he dies. And the Bible says it was, an, it was his error that caused this. It's a little bit of confusion. David's kind of like, what's going on? He doesn't understand, so he moves the, sit, he moves the Ark down to this guy named Obed-Edom's house. So they can figure out what's happening and regroup. And something very interesting happens during the few months that the ark is at the house of Obed-Edom. Everything about Obed-Edom's house, his household, everything, his servants, his family, their agriculture, it is all blessed abundantly. It's flourishing. 
And David realizes, again, I need the presence of God in the city. We need the ark in Jerusalem. So then they go a second time and they bring it up. And we're going to talk about why that's so important. But the first thing I want you to notice, number one, if we're taking notes and just kind of going through some points, number one is the blessing of God's presence. The blessing. Say it this way, wherever God's presence dwells over a people, over a land, it will be gushing with fertility and spiritual vibrancy. Wow. You know, some people have kind of a pipe dream or a hope. Maybe, you know, one day I'll win the lottery and that'll change everything. That winning lottery ticket comes into my life. Let me tell you something. There ain't nothing that will change your life and bless your life more in every facet and meaning of that word than the presence of God coming to dwell in your home and with your family. Wow. Put your faith in a sure thing. I mean, a sure thing, the presence of God. When it's there, it's gushing with fertility. It it speaks about it metaphorically in the scriptures where it says like the oil of God just flows into the land and blesses everything that it touches. But listen, the inverse is true as well. When God's presence is withdrawn from a land or a people in an area, then that land becomes desolate and dry and barren. Wow. I'd say the presence of God is pretty important to our houses of worship and faith and to our homes in our lives, wouldn't you? Absolutely. It says in the, in the scriptures that God, listen to this, he said that he would, uh, when his presence with, was with his people, it says that, that their souls would be like a well-watered garden. <laughs> wow. We're talking about blessing irrigation it's not just going to the physical crops he's saying it's going to be like a well-watered garden in your soul emotionally mentally psychologically the anchoring of your life the peace that you walk in and know like when you're in God's presence this is a byproduct of what you get to dwell in and know because the presence of God is literally blessing everything that it's like a canopy over covering wow to be fully satisfied and nourished in Him. It's, it's, oh, it's a longing of my heart that God's people will be so satisfied as we can be when we know His presence, when we live in His presence, when it's not really unfamiliar, but it's very familiar that we would be so satisfied and so sustained that really the human heart could say, I have everything that I need. There really is nothing that I need that I don't have because I have Jesus and his presence is in my life and there's really nothing else that I need. There's things I'd like to have, but there's really nothing else that I need because I need him. People go through life feeling like they need things in this transient world, like it's going to add something to them that God can't give and that he's partial, that there's something incomplete, and they miss out on the fullness of being satisfied and having their souls watered like a garden. (laughs) Hallelujah. But somebody say amen to that. All right. The blessing of God's presence. You know, areas, regions, communities. Guys, you look back in history and you study church history, you, you see that there are 
many occasions and areas when God's presence would begin to increase in a land where the whole land was changed, transformed, and radically just turned upside down. It could be a little village. It could be a whole region in an area. I love reading about these times in church history. I love reading about revivals of days past. A great revivalist in the United States in the 1800s was a man by the name of Charles Finney. He was what was called a circuit rider. And he would ride around on a horse to these different towns and villages wherever God would lead him to go. And he would begin to preach the word of God and invite the presence of God into the community and into the town. And as the people humbled themselves and repented and sought the Lord, the presence would begin to increase in this place and the towns would be radically changed and transformed. And then Charles Finney would make his way on to other villages, but those towns would be permanently changed. I just want to read to you a couple of things that I pulled out of his biography, just small excerpts of different occasions where the presence of God marked places. And I I want you to hear this and think about, my God, what if things like this were happening right now in our day and in our land and in our region? Wow. Charles Finney said, at one particular town, the presence of God was so thick, he said, if I had a sword in each hand... I could have not cut them off their seats as fast as they were falling to their faces. Indeed, nearly the whole congregation were either on their knees or on the floor in less than two minutes when God's presence showed up. Everyone prayed for himself and no one was able to speak at all. Wow. He said on another occasion, as soon as I crossed a canal, a man was, was crossing a canal at a, going past a village where they were meeting, As soon as that man crossed the canal, he said a strange impression came over him. It was an awe so deep he just could not shake it. He just felt that as if God pervaded the whole atmosphere, he said it increased the whole way until he was drawn directly into that village. The man came and repented and fell on his face before God and gave his life to the Lord. Wow. I mean, this is like presence is affecting things here. In a town called Utica and Rome... It was a common remark that nobody could even go by the town or pass through it without being aware of the presence of God. It was like a divine influence just seemed to pervade the place and the whole atmosphere seemed to be empowered by a divine life. There was a prayer and religious conversation everywhere in stores, public places, everywhere they would go. People were talking about God and what he was doing in their community. So thoroughly were individuals and whole communities reformed, and so permanent and unquestionable were the results that the conviction became nearly universal, and these, that these revivals truly were the work of God. Wow. And David understood the blessing of God's presence is paramount. We need to get that to the city of Jerusalem so it's central to everything we're trying to do. Until it's there, we might as well not even try to pursue other efforts until God's presence is here among us. Wow. Point number two is we must have a reverence for his presence. We know, okay, now let's say of the blessing of his presence, but let's talk about the importance of having a reverence for his presence in our atmosphere. A hunger for it and a reverence when it's there. It's holy. You see, this is really where Uzzah's mistake was. And to to be very frank, it really was David's mistake. 
And I think that's a part of why he's wrestling with this thing so much is because he realizes that he's the one who messed up. And Uzzah's death is really, in a way, kind of on his hands. You say, well, why is that so? And why did he have to die? So it was really buried there in the scriptures that we, we read. But you wouldn't necessarily get this from just reading these passages. You have to kind of know from Exodus and other passages about what's going on. And God had already, hundreds of years prior to this, given very clear, specific instructions about how the ark or the presence of God was to be handled, treated, and transported. Do you remember when we read the verses and it said that they put it on a cart? They put it on a cart, fancy cart, big oxen, the latest materials. Let's, 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 let's dress this thing up and let's transport this. I don't know. Maybe they had good intentions around it, but God had already spoken. He had already instructed. And here's the way he said it needed to be done. You see, the ark of God, it was like this, this big box, but it was overlaid entirely with gold. Wow. And on the four corners of the ark, there were actually four big gold rings overlaid with gold. Just a couple of things about the ark that are fascinating. It says that there were actually two cherubim or angels that were on the edges made of pure gold. And they were right there on the side of the ark and they were facing each other. These angels were and their, ang- their wings were spread out, reaching over, touching each other. And they were, they were covering the, the mercy seat of God. And it says when the ark was in the tabernacle and God would come and meet with his people, it says that God himself would speak to his people from above the mercy seat and between the cherubim. Wow. But these four gold rings on the corners of the ark were significant because there were two poles, poles made of acacia wood and also overlaid with gold. And those poles would be inserted in the rings and the priests from the tribe of Levi themselves would be the ones who would carry the, tr- the ark by foot. So you now see where the error, where the mistake was made. They put it on a cart with oxen and they're trying to transport the presence of God in a way that God very clearly said you would never do. It was being manipulated, if you will, in a way outside of God's design and there was going to be a consequence for that. And there are always consequences, hear me church, for irreverence towards God. Whether it's knowingly or unknowingly, he is holy. And Uzzah's consequence was it cost him his life. It says it was an error, but make no mistake, that error is translated into irreverence or disrespect. Wow. You see, when it comes to the presence of God in our houses of worship, in our lives, in our homes, listen to me, so important, we do not lead the presence of God, it leads us. (laughs) It leads us. We contend for it. We invite it. We welcome it. We reverence it. But it is, it is something that leads and guides and, and, and orders our life. And they got this backwards and they got it wrong. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 30. God said very clearly, You shall keep my Sabbath and you shall reverence my sanctuary. Listen to this in Leviticus 10.3. Moses said to Aaron, the Lord spoke and said, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. 
those who approach my presence. And A.W. Tozer said this, if we are going to worship God, we must worship Him on His terms and not ours. I feel like there's a lot of people in our world who want to try to set the terms for how it looks with their relationship with God, their worship, what they do, what they don't do. God is supreme. He is superior. He is the ultimate authority. And it's only whenever he is first calling all the shots that we really begin to understand what the word lordship truly means. And then the blessings of submission and surrender begin to flow into our lives. Wow. And I would say in our church and in our house, you know, we're, our, the, the responsibility and the weight of raising leaders up and empowering people in this house falls on me and on us that it's so important that people who are going to lead here are, are leading from a place where they are in God's presence, where they know God's presence. It's very familiar to them so that the, the, the oil of presence is, is saturating their lives, but that's what's flowing into their ministry and the way they're leading and serving people so that people are blessed by that work that God is doing. Wow. David eventually figured it out. The scriptures tell us later, man, <laughs> the house of Obed-Edom, I mean, they can't, they can't store all the blessing down there. They can't build enough barns to house it. I mean, it's coming out the windows and out the doorways. They're pretty blessed. Ark of God is there. And then David realizes, okay, we, got, we can't stop this effort. We got to continue and somewhere along the line, he, he goes back and he realizes what the original instructions were. And when they go back down to the house of Obed-Edom to get the ark, guess what they do this time? They get the priests and they bring the poles. <laughs> and the ark of God is successfully moved in Jerusalem. And David's throne is established. And we could say that that throne is an everlasting throne because the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came out of the lineage of David and his throne is eternal. Wow. The presence of God was very important. It was very significant. And ultimately, guys, what we have is we have this wonderful privilege and opportunity where we can live in and know God's presence in our lives and in our houses of worship and our homes. We got to seek it and we must be reverent about it. It is nothing casual. We must never take it for granted. <laughs> because to know God and to be in his presence, I'm telling you, is to be in awe of him. When we've been in it, it's undeniable and it's unmistakable. And it is the blood of Jesus Christ that covers us, that washes us, that gives us access into his presence. You see, even the priests, when they would go to transport the ark, they had to be cleansed ahead of time. They had to be cleansed ceremonially with sacrifices and with blood. And then they could transport the ark. And it's a picture, it's, a, it's, a, it's an arrow pointing to a fulfillment that Jesus accomplished, which is through his blood. All of us who know the Lord, who call upon his name, we can say we've been washed 
by the blood of Jesus. Our sins have been removed. We've been made white as snow. And praise God, we have been granted access. A passageway has been made for us to now know and come into and live in the presence of God. To be a people where God dwells in our midst. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm just so very grateful for that today. And so I would ask you this question as we close. Do you, do you feel like um, maybe God's presence has been very faint in your life for a long time? Do you feel like, man, I don't, it's just been a long time since I've really felt like God was near or close. We know that he, he is, but just maybe for you, this, the tangible expression of that is you feel like it's been faint or it's been far away. Now, I just, I feel like God's sending out this message to his church, to his people to say, I want you to come into my presence. I want you to dwell in my presence in a way perhaps like you've never known before. D dare I say, I know it's my heart and I do believe God's going to do it. That his presence will drastically increase in houses of worship and among his people. You see, there's this, there's this prediction, I mean, in Scripture that shows us that God's presence is only going to intensify. Right? I mean, we know that there was the tabernacle and God's ark was there. And then we come along and it says that our bodies now become the temples of the Holy Spirit. So there's the indwelling presence. So, so there's an escalation now of presence in our lives made by the way of Jesus. And then it even says in Ephesians that individual believers, we come together and unify as the church, and that all of us are like individual stones that build one house, and then God, and, and then that house becomes a dwelling place for God's presence. So now you have corporate in the church era, but then you also see that right before Christ returns, there's a time that Joel refers to as a latter rain outpouring, which means that God's presence and his spirit being poured out over the earth and over the land is actually going to rapidly increase like a downpour right before the final harvest, consistent with how early and latter rains went in the agricultural cycle of Israel. So there's going to be more increase towards the time of Christ's return. But oh my God, listen to this. Once Jesus Jesus comes back, and once the eternal age is ushered in, Jesus says this, listen, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, John said, I heard a voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and he shall, they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, the idea of tabernacle and presence, it just becomes this saturated environment where the presence of God is now everywhere, all the time, manifest. We just never are away from it, don't know it, is never mistaken about our awareness of it. Habakkuk says that the presence and glory of God on the earth in the eternal age will be like as the, as the water covers the sea, so the glory and presence of God will cover the earth and the land. Wow, I'm telling you, it's coming, it's intensifying. We might as well lean into what we know is coming for us. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And to be in his presence for all the eternal age 
Guys, it says, like, that's what we, when we understand, he says, that's what you should long for. And man, when we get it, when we know it, when we live in it, I don't know how you could not long for it. More.